This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Patka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast. What the hell is going on? Mark, what the hell is going on now? What the hell's going on is we just had a major security failure because the Biden administration allowed a Chinese spy balloon to float across the United States for seven days before finally shooting it down over the Atlantic Ocean. And the amazing thing about this, Danny, is that the only reason we learned about it is because some guy was in his driveway in Montana and looked up the sky and said, what the hell is that? <laughs> and saw the thing. And it reminds me of that Saturday Night Live skit with Bill Murray and Steve Martin where they're, uh, well, let, let's play it. What the hell is that? How did that name deal get here? Hey, come over here and look at this deal. What the hell is that? I don't know what the hell that is. What in the hell is that? Hey, you kid, get away from there. I would not mess with that thing. Don't put your lips on it. We literally discovered a Chinese spy balloon by a bunch of people standing in the field in Montana saying, what the hell is that, Danny? I mean, you can't make this up. No. And look, what troubles me about this, it's not even the fact that it was discovered by, you know, randos in a field imitating Steve Martin. What troubles me about this is our management of this, the way it signaled weakness, the way it signaled confusion. But even more importantly, the way that once again, the president apparently, apparently, reportedly by actual reputable journalists, ordered the thing to be shot down. And the Pentagon said, nope, not doing that. No, no, sorry. Now, we need a proper timeline. We need to understand when they knew about it. We need to understand what the president's orders were. We need to understand why it was that the Pentagon decided the commander in chief is, you know, someone not really important to listen to. And then we need to figure out whether this is such a common occurrence that the White House really views the accusations against them as politicking, not national security. Well, look, I mean, think about this. This thing left the Chinese mainland on January 21st. NORAD has the capability of tracking it. And they tracked it for seven days, crossing the Pacific Ocean until it came to the Aleutian Islands. And the question is, what were they thinking? Why did they not take it down over the Pacific instead of the Atlantic? Why did they allow this thing to cross into our territory in the first place? I mean, we can't secure our southern border and apparently we can't secure our skies over our country either. The idea that we just allow a Chinese spy balloon to enter U.S. territory without taking it down before it enters is just such a pathetic sign of weakness. And, you know, the Chinese, of course, said it's a weather balloon. Yeah, right. But I mean, 
this could have been anything. It could carry an EMP. <laughs> it could carry some sort of weapon. I mean, the idea that we would allow a hostile adversary to let this thing fly over our country and that we would sit back and watch it because we're afraid, you know, we're not going to take it out over Alaska, which is one of the least populated states in the country. We're not going to take it out over sparsely populated Canada in cooperation with our Canadian allies. And we just let this thing float across the United States where the whole country is standing and looking at the thing, looking up at the sky at this Chinese spy balloon just floating with impunity over our country. And then they shoot it down over the Atlantic and say, what a victory. You know, but I mean, it's just such incredible weakness. And also, what is wrong with our country that we can't secure our borders? And we can't <laughs> well, in the sky, on the ground. I mean, I just don't get it. That's a much bigger question. So again, for me, this is much less about China's desire to spy on us, which I think is natural. We like to spy on other countries and China likes to spy on us and they do it all the time. What really is strange to me is A, how it was handled, you know, what you just outlined, but also the fact that once caught out, once the White House is being showered with criticism from the press, from Congress, from everybody, except for its most ardent partisans, its response is, well, there were three balloons during the Trump time. And my attitude toward that is, okay, shame on Donald Trump if that's true, if that's true. You know, Mark Esper, Trump's Secretary of Defense, said he'd never heard of it. A couple of national security advisors of, of Trump's, how many did he have, like 18, said that they weren't aware of it. But but maybe it's true. Nonetheless, is that really the tone you want the White House to take? Is that really the response? Well, Danny, but here's the thing. You just raised the issue of President Biden ordering it to be shot down in the military saying, uh, no, we're going to wait. OK, we don't we need to find out, get to the bottom of how that happened, whether they convinced him to not shoot it down or whether they just simply said no, which is a constitutional question. But also no senior Trump administration officials remembers ever being briefed about a Chinese spy balloon. Did the Pentagon just not tell him? Did the military just not tell the president of the United States because they were afraid that maybe he would shoot it down and start a war with China. And so they just said, well, this isn't something the commander in chief needs to know about. I mean, there's a I think there's a fundamental issue here of, you know, civilian control of the military. It's their freaking job to tell. I mean, and they didn't just not tell Trump. Apparently, they didn't tell the secretary of defense. They didn't tell his national security advisor. I mean, if it's true that this happened, that's even worse. I think we agree wholeheartedly about this. And again, you know, everybody's going to say to themselves when they listen to us, oh, my God, it's just a Chinese balloon, whatever, who cares? And what I'm really trying to underscore here is, no, this isn't about the balloon. This is about how we reacted. This is about our readiness. And there are a whole series of other straws in the wind that suggest to us that we are not ready to confront a serious, determined enemy. OK, you don't want to defend Taiwan? No problem. Do you not want to defend the Philippines? You know, how about Hawaii? Do you not want to defend that? Because we are now working our way towards a position where we don't have the kind of stockpiles and don't blame Ukraine for this because that's not the problem. We don't have the kind of stockpiles. We don't have the kind of organization. We don't have the kind of readiness and we don't have the kind of budget that is going to make that change anytime in the foreseeable future. Oh, but Danny, we have a Republican Congress now and Republicans are for defense spending. So certainly, certainly 
all the forces that came together during the Reagan years to advocate the Reagan defense buildup to take on the Soviet Union. We've now got a new Cold War with China. The conservative movement is certainly, certainly going to unify to force the Biden administration to increase defense spending. The Heritage Foundation is going to put out papers saying we need to increase defense spending. Members of Congress from the Republican Party are going to advocate defense. Oh, wait, wait, what's this? I saw a paper from the Heritage Foundation saying we should cut defense. Wait, wait, wait. I hear that there are members of Republican Congress saying that in exchange for the debt limit increase, we're going to have to cut spending, including the defense. What, what the hell is going on, Danny? Yeah, look, I mean, I mean, yeah. truly, what, what party, what, this is not Ronald Reagan is rolling in his grave. The idea that the Heritage Foundation is advocating defense cuts. I mean, truly, the, the, Ronald Reagan's favorite think tank advocating for defense cuts. It's, it's mind boggling. You know, it's a sad moment. And you and I both have a lot of friends over there. We also have a lot of friends who have left there. I think this is a moment of madness. And the problem for us, you know, the Republican Party conservatives have been in this place before. And the problem for all of us is what got them out of it? Pearl Harbor. That's what got them out of it. Do we need to sustain an attack on American soil before these sorts of head in the sand ostriches realize that the best deterrent is strength? I don't understand it. But, you know, then again, we've had this conversation 9,000 times. We have a very good friend on to join us to talk about balloons, defense spending, weapons stockpiles, war with China, Taiwan, and yes, my really weird looking Zoom picture. Most of you, in fact, I'm sure everybody remembers our very good friend, Mike Gallagher. He was just named as the chairman of the Select Committee on Strategic Competition between the United States and the Chinese Communist Party, better known as the House's China Committee. He's been in the House of Representatives since 2017. Before that, worked on a presidential campaign, was a Senate staffer, and of course, he served in the Marines for seven years in active duty, twice deployed to Iraq, an advisor to CENTCOM. He, he's a wonderful guy. Just an asterisk for everybody. We talked to Mike uh, right before the balloon was shot down while this saga was ongoing, but the questions that he raises are as relevant now as they were before the balloon came down. Here's our interview. Well, Mike, welcome back to the podcast. Great to be back. What time is this? Is this my third time? Fourth time? Is this there is a... at least your third time? And we also did the post interviews. If that counts, that's four. There should be a uh, a punch card like for a coffee shop, or if you do you... ten, you get you you've get earned do... free coffee, free donuts, whatever you want. <laughs> it's big. It's a big development for me. Awesome. Well, you, even, you could even get a free balloon. And speaking of balloons, <laughs> well, wait a minute. You will send you a mug. Those oh, we we, oh, definitely. We'll send them a mug. No doubt. We've got mugs. Okay. So, I think that's right. under that's under the gift limit. Just for all the listeners, I will make sure with House Ethics that I'm allowed to accept this mug and I'll proudly drink uh, coffee out of this mug. Outstanding. All right. Well, so let's talk about the balloon. So as we're recording this, there's a Chinese spy balloon floating over the United States. I was just watching Jack Keane on this, and he made a really interesting point, which is, that we, you know, we have something called NORAD, which is, you know, intended to stop missiles from flying into our airspace. So he's assuming that a slow-moving balloon was detected <laughs> early on. And it was detected probably when it went up in China and as it crossed the Pacific, as it entered North American airspace, as it crossed Canada, as it crossed into the United States. And yet we did nothing. How, how do we let a Chinese spy balloon enter our sovereign airspace without shooting it down or taking some sort of action against it? 
it's unacceptable. It's inexplicable, really, because everything I've seen suggests we were at least tracking it as it or before it started transiting over the Aleutian Islands in Alaska. So if, if there's ever a place that you can shoot something down safely, it's that. That, to me, is the decision point. I've had some indication uh, that the NORTHCOM commander didn't even recommend a course of action for shooting it down at that point. So that to me is a huge missed opportunity. And then of course, some reports suggesting we were tracking it from the Chinese mainland. And again, this is a slow moving balloon. I don't understand it. The debris argument, and this has been the main thing they've hid behind that by shooting it down, you know, it's going to create a bunch of debris that could kill civilians or harm infrastructure. I, that doesn't pass the smell test to me. And even after it passed over the Aleutians, you know, as it's going over Canada, there there's multiple ways you could bring it down over sparsely populated territory. Montana, I thought I sort of thought the whole allure of Montana was that nobody was there and they were just sort of by yourself with animals. <laughs> I've, I've watched a little bit of, of Yellowstone. So I don't mean to minimize the complexity of this. I guess I would say if if there is a reason that I don't yet understand that we can't either safely take it down or better yet, disable it, corral it, collect it, look under the hood, understand the instrumentation then that's a capability we should develop pretty quickly because uh, I don't think this will be the last time we're dealing with a Chinese spy balloon. Just one more point on that. I mean, there was some last night the Pentagon seemed to be downplaying the intelligence collection value of this balloon, basically saying, well, there's nothing it could collect that overhead imagery, you know, satellites, right? Because if something's in orbit, that's there's a different question as to whether that's sovereign airspace. There's no There's no question that this was in our sovereign airspace and we had the right to take it down. But are we so sure about that? Or why, why, why are we so sanguine that we understand the full capabilities of this balloon? And let's say it's, it's, it's really unsophisticated technology. Let's, let's just say I'm wrong about this, you know, and let's just say there's no secret EMP hiding in the balloon. Uh, well, it's still a massive embarrassment and it still makes us look weak. And I wouldn't be surprised if it was deliberately timed to coincide with Secretary Blinken's planned trip to Beijing, which he he postponed. I mean, I think that's the right call. But, you know, that's right out of their playbook. I mean, just look at his first meeting with with Chinese officials in Alaska, where they berated him over, you know, human rights abuses in America. Or they could just be checking on their farmland. That's right. That's right. Well, that's a whole whole nother issue, right? I mean, I think in, in North Dakota, they blocked the Grand Forks purchase uh, after uh, an extended delay. One of the reasons we reformed the CFIUS process, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States a few years ago with this legislation called FIRMA was to give CFIUS the ability to block real estate transactions like this near our military bases. And then there was some dispute among CFIUS members that they had this authority. There was some idea that the implementing regulations made it ambiguous. Um, you know, I'd be for a, a more aggressive action, such as a, just a ban on any CCP or PLA affiliated entity buying any uh, farmland in the United States. And again, it's, it's a small percentage, but if that 0.03% is near a, a military base, particularly one that houses a, you know, a, a nuclear silo, well, that's a huge problem for us. Mike, first of all, thank you for joining us yet again. We really love having you and uh, and our listeners love you too. So I don't want to over belabor the balloon question, but it raised a, a different procedural I issue in my mind. The way it was reported, and perhaps this is inaccurate, the way it was reported was that President Biden wanted to shoot it down and the Pentagon said no. 
I don't get that any more than I get the president saying that we will defend Taiwan and the White House saying, no, we won't. But is that what you understand has happened here? That's my understanding. Now, let me caveat all this by saying I I was in transit from in a hot air balloon from uh, D.C. to Green Bay uh, via O'Hare Airport when the story broke. So I didn't have access to a SCIF, you know, a secure facility where we, we can review classified material. I, my understanding is Speaker McCarthy. You don't need a, to do that anymore. Yeah, that's that's right. I have a, <laughs> I have a locked garage. The with you, right? I have a locked garage in which I keep <laughs> my my really cool white Ford Escape, and it's really really manly car that I drive. Um, uh, <laughs> but that is my understanding of the sequence of events, which also raises the question: Okay, when 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 did that happen? Where was the balloon when the president sort of was presented the option? And and if if it was still over the Aleutians. Uh, maybe it maybe it wasn't, but obviously they could have shot it down while avoiding debris. So a lot of unanswered questions. And then here's the other thing, Danny. If they've been really emphasizing the fact that this is not the first time this has happened. So my first point is I, I've talked to a, a few high-level Trump administration officials about this in the last 24 hours, and they all are saying they're not aware of any incident, whether it was in Guam or Hawaii of something like this happening. So I don't know what's going on with that. And that would be a bigger scandal if the Pentagon indeed was tracking one of these balloons and none of the civilian officials, whether it was the Secretary of Defense or National Security Advisor or Secretary of State, were aware of it at, at that time. And then my second point would be, if indeed this is the third or fourth time we've seen a Chinese spy balloon over U.S. territory, why then don't we have a more thought out, standard operating procedure for how we take it down or how we disable it or how we better yet corral it, collect it. Um, so it's just a ton of unanswered questions right now. And then just finally, Danny, because you mentioned Taiwan, I, I just I'm, I'm sort of thinking if how can the president credibly go out there on no less than four occasions now that his staff has walked it back and say, I'm going to defend Taiwan when they're not even willing to shoot down a balloon? It just doesn't add up. What does this say about our deterrence posture? I mean, how weak does this make us look? I mean, we can't even we can't even shoot down a spy balloon over our own territory. It'd be interesting to get a, a lawyer on here. But as I read it, I mean, there's no question that we had every right to shoot it down. Like there's no there's no weird international law thing that would prevent us from doing this. And more to the point, just, you know, imagine if the shoe was on the other foot Would would, would the CCP hesitate to shoot down. An American spy balloon. I mean, they've shot down U two spy craft in, in the past. I mean, obviously, obviously no. And and if you are, you know, one of the three people out there that believe the official CCP line that this was, uh, you know, just a civilian weather balloon, then I have a, I have a, <laughs> a bunch of a pangolins at a Wuhan wet market to sell you because uh, that's just propaganda right there. So again, it's it none of it adds up. The official justification doesn't make sense. We do look weak. I think it undermines our deterrent posture. And, um, you know, it raises a lot of questions about our ability to deter a, a cross-strait invasion of Taiwan. Let's talk a little bit about the committee that's now really just now um, fully stood up with uh, both Republican and Democratic members. You're the chairman of the Select Committee on the Strategic 
competition between the United States and the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, this is obviously a great opportunity for bipartisanship, but one of the things that's been interesting to me is that you've been talking about, you know, what you're trying to do, less about money, more about understanding the role of things like TikTok, shining a light on that, understanding the Taiwan weapons backlog. If this committee is a success, and I'm asking you a nice, easy softball question, because I really want to understand where this goes. All too often, Congress talks about doing stuff and doesn't end up doing stuff. What are your big ambitions? If this committee is a success, what have you done? I think uh, a few metrics that I have in mind. Uh, One at the simplest level to the point of almost being simplistic, and and you may laugh at this. I, I think one measure of success will be that the committee still exists in the next Congress, even if control of the House changes hands. And that will be a reflection on whether we were able to do this in a bipartisan fashion and prove our value over the next two years. The second thing is I think there is a a set of legislative and policy metrics building on the work of the China Task Force. And the China Task Force under um, Chairman McCall's leadership did a great job of kind of collecting all of the existing off-the-shelf China-related legislation that exists in the House and putting it all together in one place. I think we can build on that and take it one step further in terms of not only collecting, but curating all the good ideas related to China, identifying the top 10 to 20 that have some bipartisan support, and then identifying a path through the committee process, because a lot of those pieces of legislation, they fall victim to the intercommittee competition and the turf wars, which both of you having worked on a committee know, I mean, that that's often the death of good ideas. It's just kind of you know, various chairmen wrangling over wanting to own an issue. So I think we can be the coordinating function to take good ideas and make sure they move through the committee process. They have a speaker identified path to the floor. And then, oh, by the way, we're remembering the lessons of Schoolhouse Rock. And even when we pass it, you know, out of the House, we still have to make an effort to make sure it passes the Senate, because, of course, we can't actually get anything into law if it doesn't also pass the Senate. So we kind of have a process in mind for Uh, endorsing legislation that we think is really good and has a chance of passing even in a narrowly Republican-controlled House and even in divided government. Uh, And then where where there are ideas that don't lend themselves directly to a legislative solution, um, pressuring, for lack of a better term, the administration to take action in various areas. There's a third thing, um, Danny, that I'll admit it's, it's harder to measure, and I'm still thinking through, but I do feel like our most important job is to explain to our colleagues and the American people why any of this matters. Like why why should someone care about the threat posed by the Chinese Communist Party? Maybe that's easier to answer when there's a, a big Chinese spy balloon hovering over a nuclear facility or a ranch uh, in Montana. That, That makes it a sort of clear and present danger. But I don't know if you agree. Sometimes I feel like in the national security community in D.C., such as it exists, we tend to assume that your average American yes. gets the value of defending Taiwan or understands you know, the China threat. And I don't know. I think we've got a, a long way to go to making that case resonate with people in northeast Wisconsin, people in Illinois. So I don't know how you measure the success of that communications effort, but that's really what we have to do. Explain the why to our colleagues and the American people, because this is going to cost, it's going to cost us money to wean ourselves off our dependency in certain key areas like pharmaceuticals or rare earths or energetics or microelectronics. And if we don't answer the why, 
the American people aren't going to support spending more money to secure ourselves. Does that make sense? So you lead me right into the question I was going to ask you, which is, you know, I remember when I worked for Don Rumsfeld and he told me about when he was Secretary of Defense the first time in the Ford administration, he did these briefings where he brought small groups of members of Congress to the Pentagon and he had a briefing on the Soviet military buildup and just explaining the facts like, exactly because he assumed that not just the American people, but members of Congress were not aware of the details of what the Soviets were doing. So give us that pitch. Explain the Chinese threat to America right now in a way that, you know, members of Congress who are not steeped in defense issues, uh, you know, the ordinary Americans who are living their lives and, you know, have a, are generally open to finding out this information. What should they know about what the threat from communist China is today? Well, I would say, as I've said to you in a different uh, setting, Mark, at the risk of being repetitive, I think the American people need to understand the way in which the Chinese Communist Party is trying to, if not destroy us, completely undermine us and render us subordinate, humiliated, and wholly irrelevant on the world stage. So I think the first task is just to point out the pattern of aggression. It's not an isolated incident in a hot air balloon. It's not an isolated incident on an American campus. It's not an obscure dispute over territorial claims in the South China Sea. It's a pattern of aggression against America against our sovereignty, against our allies. And the stakes are existential. I mean, they're talking openly about the triumph of world socialism, which implies, and explicitly they talk about the demise of the capitalist system led by America. So if you don't, if you think that's putting it in two hyperbolic terms, I would, I would submit you're not paying attention. The second thing, as I've said to you before, is that Las Vegas rules don't apply, right? What happens in Xinjiang will not stay in Xinjiang. Uh, you know, there's a there's a, a, a saying in Silicon Valley that the, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed yet. And in Xinjiang, we see a glimpse of the future that China wants, not just for the rest of its own society, a future of total techno-totalitarian party control, but increasingly a model to export. And if they take Taiwan, if that's what they're willing to do to their own citizens. Imagine what would happen if they take Taiwan. I think it would make it look like a Club Med in comparison. And this gets to the third thing. We're talking about, like, on some level, and I, I know I'm going to get hammered for this, but I, I believe on some level we're talking about, like, good versus evil. Like, if we don't believe that our values are good in a, in a self-evident way, freedom, liberty, self-governance, the things which the CCP is trying to undermine, and if we don't believe that things like genocide, total party control, you know, a lack of, you know, people to make decisions about their own future are bad. Or if we even put aside sort of like the highfalutin ideological uh, aspect of this, if we don't believe it's it's bad that 100,000, over 100,000 Americans are dying from fentanyl every year, and the precursors of that fentanyl are coming from China, then I, I don't know what we stand for anymore. Uh, on the world stage. And maybe I'll just link it back to the second thing and on, on a more practical level. If they're able to realize their ambitions and just even in their own backyard in Taiwan, first island chain, they can hold the rest of the world economically hostage. That means every time you see an American company self-censor, whether it's the MBA, you know, not allowing people to say anything in support of Hong Kong or, you know, Disney, you know, whitewashing genocide in order to produce, you know, Mulan in Xinjiang province, 
Well, imagine that on steroids. That's going to be every American company afraid of angering their overlords in Beijing. So that's a few reasons why it matters, because we want our system of self-government, our constitutional system to endure. We want freedom to endure. We have faith that it does. We sort of believe what Reagan said in his famous tear down this wall speech, that freedom is the victor. But we actually have to work to make sure that it is. Amen to every single one of those words. And I'm going to quote you to yourself, something that I absolutely love on the passage of the House Rules Package. Anyone suggesting this package cuts defense spending is ignoring the math. There are not 218 members that support defense cuts and any budget resolution that tries to do so will fail. All right. You just articulated a whole series of reasons we need to be serious about China as a nation. You rightly said that not everybody has this information that out there in the great beyond, you know, that isn't the Washington Beltway. There are people who don't pay attention to this every minute. No member of Congress has that excuse, however. Why then? Did my day start with an article that's gotten a lot of attention inside the Foreign and Defense Policy Department at AEI entitled Getting Serious About Responsible Defense Spending, an article that champions from the Heritage Foundation, champions the notion of defense cuts and argues that there are more and more conservative members of Congress willing to cut defense. These two things don't go together. What's going on? You know, I think there's probably a few different variables driving this push against, I I don't know if it's defense in general, but it's sort of support of Ukraine in particular. I think one is sort of the hangover from the the impeachment stuff. And it was very confusing. And, you know, I I think it sort of left a, a bad taste in people's mouth about Ukraine or corruption in Ukraine. And maybe that made some members skeptical about the idea that we should defend Ukraine from a, you know, an invasion from Russia. So maybe that's one thing driving it. I don't know. The other thing is, I think some people believe this idea that in order to confront China effectively, like we just don't have the bandwidth or the resources to confront Russia, or maybe the more sophisticated version of that. I actually think it's sort of less sophisticated, but maybe there's some people that think we can do some masterful reverse Nixon goes to China and triangulate Russia against China, which would be an act of absolute diplomatic ledger domain if we could do it. The problem is it's just not possible at all. Putin doesn't share our interests. He's not interested in some de facto alliance with us against China. And oh, by the way, He's, you know, he's taking, he's invading countries uh, by force and doing everything possible to undermine us. And he's poisoning uh, British citizens on their soil, uh, things like that. And then maybe the third thing is, and maybe this is the most, um, I don't know. I mean, th- there's a, there's a, there's a grain of truth in this, I guess, is that there is a lot of waste in the Pentagon. I mean, the answer is not then to indiscriminately cut the Pentagon across the board because we're still not spending as a function of GDP anywhere near what we were spending during the Cold War. And I think the threats we faced are are now just as severe. I mean, I think the new Cold War is in many ways more complex. And I think the threat posed by communist China is more sophisticated and challenging than that posed by, by Soviet Russia, though they may be less overtly military bellicose. But yeah, I, I, th- I think maybe it's a, it's a reaction to some of the bureaucratic waste we're seeing, or more recently to 
um, some of the woke policies we've seen in the Pentagon, which we should absolutely get rid of the DEI bureaucracy, if for no other reason than it distracts from war fighting and, then it, and, and, and that it actually doesn't work. I mean, it increases intergroup hostility. It contributes to our recruiting crisis. But it's not like by getting rid of Austin's you know, special assistant for DEI affairs, you're suddenly going to harvest savings that immediately produce another, another harpoon missile for Taiwan the next day. I think you can sensibly reform things like the, the biggest branch of the military, which is DOD civilians, while still increasing overall spending and make sure that that money goes towards hard power and things that will deter wars rather than useless bureaucracy. So I don't know if any of that makes sense. The final thing I'd say is for those of us who believe supporting Ukraine is a good investment, particularly since no Americans are on the ground fighting and dying. We have we have a partner there that in contrast to some of our partners and allies that occasionally frustrate us is actually willing to fight and fight quite well. I think we need to do a better job of teasing out the connection between Russia uh, and China and, and really make the case compellingly that these two countries are in a de facto alliance against us, that they've been waging a Cold War with hot components against us for quite some time and that Putin is just Xi's junior partner in this effort, or as our mutual friend Tom Tugendhat says, he's Putin's tethered goat uh, in Eastern Europe and chaos in Eastern Europe. And, a, and, and particularly if that, if that chaotic effort is successful, serves his interests and makes it more likely he'll make a move on Taiwan. Let's assume for argument's sake that, you know, you're talking to somebody who, you know, cares about the threat from communist China and thinks that our effort in Ukraine is distracting us from that. You're the head of the of the China committee whose, whose job is to make the case for dealing with the China threat. What do you say to that member and how do you explain why a failure to stop Putin from succeeding in Ukraine would hurt deterrence against China and Taiwan, for example? Well, I think even back up before that, right? Look at the deterrence failure in Ukraine. So if your concern is that uh, we're spending too much money in Ukraine or that this is a precarious situation that could escalate, particularly that it could escalate to a strategic or nuclear level, then all the more reason to ensure that deterrence does not fail across the Taiwan Strait. Because we don't want a February 24th scenario to play out in Taiwan. We don't want an administration that's going to rely solely on the threat of soft power, mean tweets, and the vague threat of sanctions to deter. Because in Ukraine, we saw that fail spectacularly. And it has been costly in terms of blood and treasure. And it would be better if deterrence works. So the lesson of Ukraine is that hard power deters, and we need to arm our partners and allies before the shooting starts. That's our best way of preventing World War III in the Indo-Pacific would be my first point. The second point I'd make is that I actually think we have a massive opportunity right now. What is Ukraine exposed? Well, we burned through like seven years worth of javelins in the first couple of months. We just don't have adequate stockpiles of key munitions. We, we just, our defense industrial base is so fragile. So if we can fix that, if we can move to multi-year procurement for javelins, for harpoons, if we can fix our foreign military sales process, which any you know foreign relations committee alum knows how messed up that can be at times. You know, we got $19 billion worth of backlogged FMS items 
for Taiwan right now. It makes no sense. But if we can use this and learn the right lessons and rebuild Freedom's Forge, replenish our stockpiles, and then the triple bank shot is to convince some of our more problematic allies, I'm thinking Turkey, and then non-allied countries like India, which rely on Russian weapon systems that are fraught with vulnerabilities to replace their kit with American systems, then things get really interesting. Then I think we have the opportunity to once again be the arsenal of democracy. And then on a more immediate level, I think, you know, I think Xi Jinping is going to school on what's happening in Ukraine. And if somehow Putin's successful, um, and remember, they signed this no limits partnership and they constantly echo each other's rhetoric when it comes to color revolutions and the threat posed by the West. If Putin's successful, I think that makes Xi Jinping more ambitious in terms of his, his belief that he can make a move on Taiwan and nothing would happen. And Taiwan actually, you know, it's like the, the thing that makes Taiwan a difficult island to, to invade because it's an island, make it more difficult to resupply, more difficult than Ukraine to resupply. So there, I think we have an even greater sense of urgency to plant, you know, to, to put certain systems in Xi Jinping's way, to put hard power in his path before it's too late. I guess all of this, your question and Danny's question, get back to the most basic reason why we need to be engaged in the world, you know, why we need to care about the threat posed by Putin and Xi Jinping, which is that, you know, war is hell. I mean, I, the business we're in is is deterrence. It's preventing war. That's better than actually finding ourselves stumbling into World War III on someone else's terms. We don't want Americans to die, but it's strength that gives us our best chance to both end the war in Ukraine on terms that are acceptable to the Ukrainians and prevent a war from breaking out uh, with China over Taiwan. I want to come back to this Taiwan arms backlog. It's not because of Ukraine. I think that's absolutely clear. You know, most of it was already backed up before uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. So that's not the reason. But just to look back a few years, I remember speaking myself with unbridled contempt about our NATO allies during the Obama administration when they were uh, working to oust Muammar Gaddafi from Libya. And I pointed out that our French and even our British allies couldn't even manage to supply the ousting of the dictator in Libya. One ran out of ammunition, the other ran out of bombs. And I thought this was an absolutely pathetic debacle. Little thinking that, in fact, we have very serious shortfalls in our own stocks. I mean, if we can't help Ukraine beat Russia in what I think is a, a fairly circumscribed war, what exactly is it that we're thinking about a major conflict? And what are we going to do? Just ask for a little break after a week? I don't understand how this happened. Yeah, no, let's say we were able to hold the PLA off for the first three to seven days of the conflict. Well, we're going Winchester. You know, we're expending a lot of our, our rounds. In any war game I've played, we we run out pretty quickly. So then you need to surge assets. You need to you need to send ships sailing from the west coast of the continental United States to the theater. That takes time, and they'd be doing it in a contested fashion. I don't see how that works. You're right to reference the 2011 NATO campaign in Libya. We ran low on precision guided munitions right away. These tend to be the type of things that always get shortchanged in the NDAA process or in the appropriations process. 
you know, they're viewed as sort of build pairs for other more exquisite weapon systems. So we really need to rethink that. I think the fundamental thing going on here, as you'll appreciate having worked on the Hill, is the divide between the authorizers, that's us on the House Armed Services Committee, and the appropriators who actually give the money to the Pentagon. And the appropriators don't like giving the Pentagon multi-year authority to buy these systems. That's more efficient. That allows you to stockpile more quickly because they view it as reducing their authority on a year-by-year basis to say, you can have this, you can have this, but you can't have this, you can't have that. I think we need to move away from that. I really think we need to bridge this gap between the authorizers uh, and appropriators to avoid bottlenecks in munitions production. The other thing I've discovered as we've dug into this is that on any given missile system, roughly 30% of the material requires extended lead times beyond a year. So maybe we could use the Defense Production Act, a modernized Defense Production Act to shorten that timeline. But regardless, you have to place advanced orders on those long lead items and put them into storage so you can start really replenishing your stockpile. The final thing I'd say about this, where I think we have a uh, a big opportunity, there was a great report that came out a year and a half ago, two years ago, about energetics. Energetics are their propellants, explosives, and pyrotechnics. So the things you put in a, you know, a missile to make it go, go far and go boom on impact. Basically, what this report discovered is that our energetics industrial base is completely brittle. We have a few government-owned, contractor-operated GOCO facilities in the United States that are generations behind in terms of the energetics they use relative to the Chinese. And the Chinese energetics have something like 30% more penetrating power that can go longer, et cetera, et cetera. But also, and crazily enough, we're actually dependent on China for a lot of the sourcing for energetics. So think about that. For the things we're putting in weapons... (laughs) that will potentially be used in a war with China in the future, we're actually dependent on the Chinese for those things. It makes absolutely no sense. If ever there was a case for onshoring, for decoupling, it's in the energetics industry. So my point is, I think there's a way to solve it. I think you can use a combination of a a, a revitalized Defense Production Act, sensible multi-year authority, maybe take some lessons from Operation Warp Speed, use the unexpended funds that the Pentagon has every year that go back into the Treasury, and plow them into stockpiling key munitions, but it takes leadership at the Pentagon. You need a SecDef who's empowered by the president to be to, to actually bend the bureaucracy to his or her will, and that's what we haven't had. I think the next phase is to scrutinize American money that's going to Chinese companies and figure out a way in which we are not directly or indirectly subsidizing communist genocide or Chinese military modernization. I think that principle is obvious. Putting it in practice is a little bit more complex, but I think we can get there. And that's going to be one of the goals of my committee to emerge from at least these first two years with a framework for selective and strategic economic decoupling that makes sense. But I apologize. I can't remember the name of these companies off the top of my head. No worries. So everything you're saying leads to the conclusion that not only should we not be cutting defense, we should be increasing defense spending. That we need, use the phrase in Operation Warp Speed to catch up in some of these areas where we're behind to reinvigorate our defense industrial base. But it sounds like there are a lot of members of your own party who don't seem to get that. As Danny referenced, the Heritage Foundation just said that in this debt limit fight, that defense spending should be on the table. Everyone couches it in, you know, oh, well, we'll just want to cut waste. Well, okay, if we can find ways to cut, then let's put that into kinetics, not into, you know, spending cuts. I mean, 
what how is this debt limit fight going to affect all this? Because it sounds like I mean, McCarthy has taken Social Security and entitlements off the table, which are the big driver of the debt. So we've only got discretionary spending. The biggest pot of discretionary spending is defense spending. Otherwise, if you take that off the table, then there's not much there. And so it seems like a lot of Republicans are willing to, you know, cut defense spending. Can you promise us on this podcast that there will not be a defense cut of any kind under the Republican uh, House? I can promise you that I won't vote for it. And I think there's at least I mean, there's more than five members who are in that same boat and the numbers above 50, if not 100. So I, I just can't fathom a scenario in which as part of a debt ceiling increase, we're cutting defense. I've never voted for a debt ceiling increase. I think there's far more sensible things you can do. I mean, the president was already basically forced to admit that he's going to end the the COVID emergency. And remember, that wasn't just a semantic distinction. Using emergency powers for COVID allowed him to plus up federal spending to states. You know, states weren't aren't allowed under the emergency to, to remove people from their Medicaid rolls, for example. It kind of froze that all in place. So that's actually a fiscally responsible maneuver. The other thing I've been I've been asking kind of the talented lawyers I work with to give me an answer on is okay. If, why okay? Why are we talking about cutting defense if we're willing to just spend upwards? I mean, it's going to cost. You may not call it a direct spend, three hundred billion to seven hundred fifty billion dollars, uh, magically forgiving student debt. Why is it that we can just find trillions of dollars for all of this? You know, domestic pork. You know, the butter, but the guns are always the first thing to get cut. It doesn't make any sense to me. And oh, by the way, if if that student loan forgiveness is tied up in the courts, because remember, this was a crazy constitutional theory. It was a triple bank shot whereby uh, with a combination of emergency powers and executive authority tied to a 2003 bill called the HEROES Act, the target of which was, you know, people affected by 9-11, the president is able to- Service magically- member. Yes, yeah, service People members. called up that duty so that they wouldn't default on their loans when they went to war. <laughs> so- if this is tied up in the courts because it's absurd, so no one can actually access a loan forgiveness or access the, the portal, well, could we just clarify the ambiguity in the 2003 bill and thereby save ourselves you know, the 300 to $750 billion uh, subsidizing the middle class? Defense. Yeah, exactly. Like There's all <laughs> sorts of ways on the non-defense side we could, we could find money to fund defense. I, you know, the entitlement stuff is very tricky. I think at best you set up a process that learns the right lessons from Simpson Bowles in order to look at it. I have a bill called the Trust Act that's bipartisan and bicameral, where you kind of create four separate rescue task forces. It doesn't prescribe a solution, but it does. It creates a, a process through which you might arrive at a fix that gets a vote on the House floor. But the politics of that are nasty. I mean, I say that as someone who had a million dollars spent against me in my first election, saying I was going to, you know, throw everybody's grandma off a cliff, which was a lie. But that same, you know, tired old political move uh, is used every year by the Democrats. Mike, we've taken a ton of your time on this Friday afternoon, and I'm worried about abusing our our friendship. I want to ask you about one last thing. You never worry about abusing my friendship. That's because I don't like you. (laughs) (laughs) Danny, I have to ask you about this picture I'm looking at on on the screen. It looks like (laughs) you when you're in high school 
or, or something. Yes, you got okay. that right. That's me. Don't ask me why that's up there. I can't remember why, but that is that is in fact me in high school looking substantially younger and more brunettish. But the real me, the old me, unfortunately, saw that the director of central intelligence, Bill Burns, said that Xi Jinping has instructed his military to be ready for an invasion of Taiwan by 2027. We had a senior Pentagon official suggesting that the military needs to get ready for war with China. How do you assess all of these statements? Is is war around the corner? I believe we've entered the window of maximum danger. She had moved up the date, uh, his target date for the PLA being capable of taking Taiwan to 2027 over a year ago. So I don't know if there's something new in what Bill Burns is referring to, or maybe he's just publicly talking about it for the first time. The Minahan memo, this was the Air Force general, said you know, he feels like war is imminent in 2025. Then we have the Davidson window, a, a reference to former Indo-PACOM commander Phil Davidson, who said in his last testimony before the Senate, before he left, that you know, within the next six years, he thinks they can make a move on Taiwan. Listen, the honest answer is, is nobody knows. There's a lot of variables. Uh, you know, Obviously, the Chinese are dealing with um, the impact, the lingering impact of COVID zero. They had internal unrest recently, massive protests that they they suppressed pretty uh, effectively. I think you know the worst things get for Xi Jinping, and they get really bad in the 2030s, demographically, economically. I think the more aggressive he'll get in the short term. That's my theory of the case, a theory I've stolen from smart people like Andrew Erickson at the Naval War College, who's done some great, great work on this. Um, and I think things really heat up starting in January of 2024. And I say that because that's when the Taiwanese have their elections. Uh, and by all accounts, I think the DPP will win. Xi Jinping will conclude that he can't achieve reunification of Taiwan with the mainland via political warfare. So he has to consider actual warfare. And then we launch into you know, our own presidential election process, which is going to be a mess. We're going to be internally divided. And so that's what worries me. And then the final variable on our side is we have a lot of these big defense bills that are coming due, like the Columbia class submarine, a massive cost. I mean, we're and we're considering cutting our Navy. Think about this. The, the Biden plan that they came out with last year would have cut the Navy to 279 ships, have it bottom out by 2027 at the worst possible moment our priority force would be at its weakest. Um, so that's what worries me. That's why I think we're in the window of maximum danger. And if you disagree, I still think I still think it makes sense to act with a sense of urgency to move heaven and earth in order to you know, persuade Xi Jinping that his operation or his attempt to take Taiwan by force will be unsuccessful. Well, that's another way that Ukraine may possibly be helping us in that perhaps it has given Xi Jinping some pause about his ability because the Russian military certainly didn't perform the way it promised President Putin it could perform. I mean, they haven't fought a war since the 1970s. Maybe they're not quite as capable as they think they are. Do you think that's possible? I think it's definitely possible. We don't know if they can fight. That's the biggest unknown variable. Uh, you know, I've had conversations with your AI colleague, Oriana Mastro, on this point, who's a real expert on the PLA. You know, one positive note, I think, and I do think it's connected to what we're seeing in Ukraine, as well as just the general threat from China, is what we're seeing in Japan. I mean, this is a massive sea change. I mean, they're, the investments they're about to make in their own defense, they're going to get past the 2% of GDP threshold. You know, my initial indications from people that are are close to this suggest they're buying the right things. I mean, they're going to be go from being the ninth biggest defense spender to the third behind us and China. I mean, that's our that's that's a that's a massive, massive bolstering 
of our allied deterrent posture in the region. And I got to believe that's that's Japan not only looking at China and all the threats we've seen from Xi Jinping and Xi Jinping firing missiles into Japan's EEZ, but looking at Europe and Putin and realizing that, you know, when when dictators tell you they're going to invade a country, uh, they may just darn well do it. So we better be prepared for that. Well, Mike, you said that we need new leadership at the Pentagon in January 2025. I've got a pretty good idea of who I'd like to see doing it. I'm sure Tom Cotton appreciates that support. <laughs> uh, <laughs> exactly. We have big plans for you. We just need to clone you first. <laughs> good. If you can con- convince my wife to let me keep, uh, you know, devoting myself to preventing World War III, that'd be great too. Yeah, well, it's good for your is good for your young family. <laughs> what could, what? My, there's nothing my two and a half year old daughter likes more than you know defending America from genocidal communist aggression. Exactly. Yes, you've taught her well. <laughs> Thanks a ton, huh? And good luck. Great, great. This is always you, fun, you, guys. Bye. Bye. Take care. Bye. Bye. Danny, I'm serious. I think that Mike Gallagher uh, is a rising star in the Republican Party. He is sort of in a position right now, the way Mike Pompeo was the start of the Trump administration as a member of Congress who could very easily uh, become CIA director, become secretary of state. I think he'd be perfect as secretary of defense because he has this rare combination of being very clear sighted, but also with a wonky knowledge of weapon systems and grand strategy. I just think he'd be a great leader for the Defense Department to get us ready for these threats. But before that happens, we got to win a presidential election and he's got to run a China committee to raise awareness of this threat. What do you think? First of all, I think he should run for president, you know, as soon as he's got a few more years under his belt. So I'm not sure that the best. Oh, wow. You've already, you already, you already. I'm I'm, I'm I'm there already. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm also desperate for some really, you know, outstanding and like-minded Republican candidates for president, let me be honest. But in the meantime, I agree with you entirely. He's got a really important job. He absolutely needs to focus on the job of education. I don't think, and this is the conversation that we've been having a little bit internally at AEI, I think that a lot of people think about the United States and the defense of the United States and they think exactly, you know, what you said to me in a recent conversation, or maybe even been our last podcast, you know, this is the land of Rosie the Riveter. We can do it. If the time comes when our nation is in danger or our allies are in danger and we choose to defend them, we will be able to step up and we'll be able to ramp up quick and we'll be able to dig into our stockpile and we'll be able to, you know, recruit those members of the military. And the answer is recruitment way, way down. Stockpiles. Worst, worst levels since the, since the start of the all-volunteer force. Worst recruiting crisis. Right after, so the end of the draft, right after Vietnam. So imagine- And we're kicking thousands of people out because they won't have their COVID vaccine. Well, that's, that's not going to happen anymore because- But it did, and they haven't reinstated those folks. Like something like 6,000 people have been kicked out of the military before they reversed that policy, and they haven't been brought back in. Um, combat experienced people, you know, people who've gone through wars, who have irreplaceable knowledge, and we're just pushing them out. It's an outrage. That is an outrage. But I think also that people live under the illusion that we are the country we were. 
And the answer is that we needed that spending of the 1980s to dig us out from under the 1970s. We coasted on that spending after we defeated the Soviet Union in the Cold War. We coasted on that spending and we really haven't plussed up in any serious way since. And all of that spending that we did in the first decade of this century went to, you know, what what our nerds know is called op tempo, which is, you know, fighting a war that's expensive. You lose equipment, you need to get more equipment. And the notion that you're making foundational investments, let alone research and development for the future is wrong. We are not ready for any sort of conflict, let alone with a country that's investing the way that China has been. Well, we got to get ready and we got to stop this insanity within the Republican caucus of talking about defense cuts. There is just no ifs, ands or buts. We need to increase our defense budget. You know, if you call yourself a constitutional conservative, the one fundamental purpose of government is to provide for the common defense, according to the Constitution. And so if, if you you think that you've got some spending priorities that are more important than that, then I, I refer you back to the founding document that you hold and you're supposed to be keeping in your pocket. You are totally right. We need to be out there fighting this fight. And I mean that not just because we believe in the importance of Ukraine defeating Russia, because we believe in the defense of Taiwan, not just that, but because we believe in our own national security and our system in the things that have kept us free all these years. And the fact that we have let them slide to a state where we no longer care that a country that is Basically, our enemy is sending enemy surveillance craft over our country that we don't give a damn about that for whatever reason it is, is a sorry, sorry day in America. Well, I will tell you, Mike Gallagher is up on Capitol Hill making that case. And we've got more responsibility than we ever realized here at AEI, because I guess we're the only conservative think tank left that believes that. And so, you know, we're going to have to up our game on on making this case. We're the, we're the only game in town at this point, apparently. Yep. And you're exactly right. We need to fight this good fight. And I, I've been talking to my colleagues all day about it. And I know that they're going to be out there doing just that. Hey, folks, thank you. If you have questions, if you have comments, if you have ideas, concerns, anything at all, don't hesitate to reach out to us. You can also comment on our Substack, and we see those comments as well. Thanks for listening. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.